Then David summoned the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, and the Levites, Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, Aminadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went, up, went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on the harps and lyres. Father, we gather to hear your word, not to hear Mike's interesting thoughts, but we really desperately, desperately long to hear from you, Jesus. <clears throat> so may you speak to us. Speak to us clearly. Help us to put aside distractions and all the mental noise that crowds out your small whisper and to hear from you from your word and to know that you are a God who still speaks, and a God who still draws near to us, your people. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My, noise, my, my volume sounds a little bit boomy. Like, okay. I love you, Chandler. Um, okay. A couple questions to get us started. Just think these in your head. Is there a right and wrong way to fold clothes? And here's my prediction. If you're single, you're probably thinking, no, there's just one way, the way I learned. Whereas if you're married, you realize, no, there really is a right and a wrong way, and you're probably the wrong way uh, if you're the husband anyways. So, other question. If you're like me, and again, you one day woke up and realized that there are 23 Marvel movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like, what is, the, is there a right and wrong way to watch those in order, like what the order is? Right? Do you watch them as they were released? you watch them in the actual internal chronological timeline of the Marvel Universe, among Marvel fans, these are, you know, for them, yes, there is a right and a wrong. Another question, is there a right or wrong way to drink coffee? And this is one that I can say, yes, there is, and it's black. 
You add creamer to coffee when it's bad coffee. But when it's good coffee, yes, there is a right way to drink coffee. On a much more serious note, though, is there a right or wrong way to worship? Not in the sense of are there, you know, obviously we shouldn't be offering children's sacrifices in our worship gatherings, but is there actually a right or wrong way for us to approach our service and what we do when we come together in the parts of our service? Is there a right or wrong way? Now, we're, in the, we're starting a new series on First and Second Chronicles. This is written to the exiles of Israel as they're coming back out of exile. And it's written to instruct them and teach them, to remind them of their history, and in so doing, remind them of who they are, who God is, a people who have not worshipped at the temple for 100 years. What does that worship even look like now? What does God want from his people? And so what we'll find as we look at our text this morning, which is actually covering three chapters, chapters 13, well, four, I'm sorry, 13, 14, 15, and 16, we'll find is that the chronicler is telling the people of Israel that there is, in fact, a right way and a wrong way to worship God. And the reason for that is because God is holy. And out of this, we'll actually draw three worship principles just to keep an eye out for. But to give you an outline of where we're going this morning, uh, chapter 13 will be our first point, and that's going to show us a wrong way to worship. And then in chapters 15 and 16, that's going to show us the right way to worship. And then our third point is going to be looking at our worship here in the 21st century. Does this have any relevance for us in how we worship at Vine Street Baptist Church? So to give a quick recap again, the book of First and Second Chronicles is one of the last books written in the Old Testament. It's written to the people of Israel after they've spent 70 to 100 more years in forced exile. And they're coming back home and multiple generations have lived and even died in exile. So they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten what true worship even looks like. It's not that likely that they had copies of the Old Testament with them in exile. There may have been multiple generations of Jews who had not had access to even read God's word. So Chronicles is kind of laying out the history of Israel again for these people. And again, it's, it's teaching them as you rebuild as a nation what's important for you, what's important to know about God, what's important to know about worship. And so we looked at chapters 1 through 9, which if you've, read, if you've tried to read Chronicles before, they're just all genealogies. And at first glance, it can feel overwhelming. And then at second glance, it remains overwhelming. All the genealogies, we found there's a purpose to these genealogies. They were to communicate to Israel that you are God's chosen people. What's most true about you is not that you are a landless, small remnant of who you used to be. The most important thing is that God chose you out of all the nations, and he chose you to be a worshiping community, and he chose you uh, to be a waiting community. Now, we're going to be looking at 13 to 16, so I'm going to fill in the gaps of 10, 11, and 12 really quickly. Um, if you have a Bible, it's just helpful to kind of flip over and even read the headings. But in chapter 10, we all of a sudden get to King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. If you remember, one of the themes of, of Chronicles is the waiting for the king. In fact, that's the title of our series, Awaiting the King. And so in chapter 10, we get the first king, but what's interesting about the chronicler is that he doesn't include all of the kind of prehistory of Saul. He just jumps right to him when Saul fails and is, and is removed. And the chronicler is just focusing on how Saul was the king, yes, but he's not the king. And it's not from his line that the king is going to come who you're waiting for. And he kind of summarizes it in chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, why Saul was removed from being king by God. So it says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord, and they did not keep the command of the Lord, 
And he also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. And therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And that's pretty much all we get about Saul. That's all the chronicler wants to communicate. He was king, but he's not the king. And again, he's communicating to the people of Israel as they come back, and he's telling them, look, you need a king, but he's not going to come from the line of Saul for these reasons. But then right away in chapter 11, we move into, into David. And chapters 11 and 12 is the chronicler communicating to the returning exiles, David was not a king who became king based on just his own ingenuity, his own strength, but he was a king anointed by God. God's hand was in this from the beginning. And so he has all these military victories, and he talks about David's mighty men. Um, I worked as a counselor in a boys' camp when I was in college. And when you're trying to get 14, 15, 16-year-old boys to be interested in the Bible— this is, this, is, this is where you go, David's Mighty Men. It's like, a, it's like a, you know, an epic film in ways. It's pretty cool. And there's also a lot of emphasis on the fact that David, uh, it was not just a, you know, a movement in the tribe of Judah, but that all of Israel was coming to David and unifying around him. So again, telling the returning exiles, the king is going to come from, like David was a true king. And the king we're waiting for is going to come from his lineage. And then finally we get to chapter 13. And we get the first significant thing that David does uh, in his kingship. We're the first thing that the chronicler points attention to. So turn to chapter 13. Let's look at verses 1 to 4. And David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites and the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Again, communicating how David is different than Saul. Saul neglected the ark. It's very clear in that in verse 3. During Saul's reign, he did some good things, some bad things, but he neglected the ark of God. And so the first thing David does when God gives him the kingdom is, okay, I want to restore the ark to the center of, of our, our identity as a nation. Let's bring it to the capital. That's where it belongs. Now, a question that, that's in the background that's not explained here is, okay, what is this ark? What is the ark of the covenant? It doesn't explain what it is or where it comes from, but it's a very important aspect of Israelite worship. Now, just practically speaking, the ark was a, a, a four-foot long by two feet by two two feet deep two feet high wooden box and it was covered in gold it was highly ornamented there were figures on top called cherubim which like uh, angels with wings Um, and inside it would have been kept the two stone tablets that god gave to moses on sinai as well as the the staff that blossomed but more significantly was what the ark so that's what the ark looked like just the physical parameters of it but more significant was the theological purpose of the ark. And the ark was where God would meet with his people. In Exodus 25, when God is giving the descriptions of the ark and what it will be for and all that, in Exodus 25, verse 21 to 22, he says, And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, and there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. It was the ark, the ark was God's presence to his people. 
And that's why it's so significant that Saul did not seek the ark or care about the ark because it's saying he didn't care about God or his presence or knowing God or hearing from God. And that's why Saul fundamentally failed as king. Additionally, actually later in our text here, the ark is also described in this way. In verse 6, it's described as the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. It's kind of an interesting description but at first it says that this ark is called by the name of the Lord. It's communicating the intimate presence of God. Names are intimate things, right? Like someone we don't know well, we call them by their last name often. Or if you're a student, you call your professor, professor so-and-so. And then once you become a grad student or a peer, you're allowed to call them by their first name. And in the Bible, God had a personal name, Yahweh. That was his intimate personal name he gave to one people, Israel. So it says that this is the ark that's called by his name is communicating this is God's intimate presence, not generic God over all the world, but the God who reveals himself to his people. This is his intimate personal presence. Yet it's also described as, as a place where God's, um, above which God is enthroned. It's the footstool of God's throne. As sacred and holy as the ark was, because it was where God would meet with Israel, it was still just the footstool of God. Like that's the best we can handle in our, in, our, in our limited, frail human selves is just his feet. And even that is overwhelming and, 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 and deeply sacred and holy. That's what the ark was. And so when David comes and says, I want to bring this, to, to Jerusalem, that's the right idea, the right intention. That is a God-glorifying desire. I want God to be at the center of our nation. I want to seek his face. And all the people agree. Verse 4, all the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. They all have a desire. Yes, let's bring the ark to the center of our nation. Let's make it close to our hearts. Let's seek God's face again. All the people. That's what you call a Revival. When God moves in the hearts of a large mass of people to burden them to know him, it's what you call revival. So this is good. It begins with right intentions. The problem is they ended up having the wrong means. Look at verses 5 to 8. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bela, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. The image here is, is, is a worshipful, uh, joyful, optimistic procession of all the people. I mean, guys, this is what we want to see when God's Spirit is moving in all the people. And it's not just some people who are passionate, but all the people are saying, yes, I want God. It's a good thing that's happening. But there's some things happening that are not good. And we find, and we see here, is actually, even though there's right intentions, right motives, there are explicit commands of God that are being disobeyed. So for instance, in Exodus 25, verses 12 to 15, God expressly commanded his people on how to transport the ark. 
and that they were supposed to be carried on poles. Read this behind me. You shall cast four rings of gold for the ark and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. God had expressly told them, and again, this is, the ark is, is where God meets with his people. It's sacred, it's important, and it's supposed to be carried in a specific way. But how are they carrying it? Well, they carried it, ark of God, on a new cart. Okay, well, that's one. Explicit uh, command disobeyed. But second and third, God had told Israel who should carry the ark, and also had expressly told them never touch it. In Numbers 4.15, it says that the sons of Kohath, that would have been a clan within the tribe of Levi. It's not just any Levite. It had to be of a certain clan. It says the sons of Kohath shall carry these. It's referring to actually all of the, the, the articles of the tabernacle. So it would have been the ark and all the, the, the sacred utensils and vessels. They shall carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So, so again, this procession is, it seems to be coming from such a good place and it's well-intentioned and it's sincere and authentic, but there's two express commands that they're just directly disobeying. And so look what happens in verse 9 to 13. And so when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Rightly intentioned worship Worship that comes from the heart, but that's carried out in the wrong way, is actually wrong worship. That's what's being communicated here. Again, the processional was rightly intentioned, like it was the right thing to try to bring the ark to Jerusalem. That was the right thing to do. It was coming with all sincerity, but it was using the wrong means, and that means that it was wrong worship. It was worship that was displeasing to God. And that brings us to our first worship principle. This is actually going to have two parts to it. So the first part of this first worship principle is that authenticity is not enough. When it comes to the worship of God, authenticity is not enough. There's a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. He coined this phrase, the age of authenticity. And he describes our, our age in, in kind of the West. One of the chief virtues is, is authenticity, being sincere, being authentic. There's kind of a pop cultural mantra which says, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Right? So if you want to be a Christian, that's fine. Just be sincere about it. If you want to be a Muslim, that's fine. If you want to be a Buddhist, that's fine. Just be sincere. Like, mean what you mean. Of course, we don't actually mean that, right? No one says, well, if you're going to be a neo-Nazi, just be sincere about it. Or, you know, well, Hitler, at least he was sincere. We don't actually believe that, but things that don't matter that much to us, like religion, we'll say that about. Well, authenticity is good, <laughs> Not, let's, not, you know, let's not get it wrong. Like we, we need to be sincere, and Jesus had very strong words for hypocrites. He had no place for insincerity or inauthenticity. But it's not enough. 
This brings us to our full worship worship principle that authenticity is not enough because God is holy. Sincerity, wholeheartedness is not enough because God is holy. Think about it this way. An analogy, the more important or significant something is, the more important it is that we get it right. So if I'm making a sandcastle at the beach, like I... For me, good enough is good enough, right? Like, if it doesn't survive the tide, that's okay. Some of us maybe are, you know, either we are architects or wish we were architects, and we're, like, making the walls perfect. And, like, but at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, when the sun goes down, I can give up and go home. Good enough is good enough. If I'm making a multi-lane extension bridge across the Ohio River, good enough is not good enough. It has to be perfect. Every calculation, every engineering Whatever they do, it's got to be perfect because there's going to be Mack trucks driving across this, and if it's not, people will die. The more important or significant something it is, the more important it is we get it right. The most important and significant fact in the universe is God. When we say God is holy, what what we're saying is that God is in a league of his own. It's not like we're here and then God is like us times 10. It's like, no, no, no. He is in a league of his own. He's fundamentally different from us. Like, we are good, maybe, or we're bad. God is goodness. Things are good only insofar as they image God. He sets the standard by his own being. I may be loving, you may be loving. God is love. Things are loving only insofar as they image God's character. Similarly, God is not just a powerful being. He's the most powerful being conceivable. God is holy. And so that means that when we approach God in worship, winging it is not, uh, is not enough. Good enough is not enough. Sincerity Authenticity is not enough. It's necessary, yes, but it's not enough. Because God is holy, we also need obedience. Now, sometimes we think of the holiness of God, imaged here, where God actually strikes someone down for failing to take his holiness seriously. And we think that's an Old Testament thing. And then we get to Jesus, and Jesus is the one who's like, you know, showing compassion and kindness and and. But holy, God remains holy from the Old through the New Testament. And there's a story in Acts we tend to forget because it's really weird. But in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira were two believers who lied about a financial gift they'd made to the community of faith, and God struck them dead in the church service. And, and it's like, whoa, this is really crazy. God remains holy. He didn't change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So here's a question for us. If if, if this is the holy God that we worship, one who is a consuming fire, who is goodness, who is love, who is the most powerful being conceivable, who is in a league of his own, like, do we prepare ourselves to meet him on Sunday mornings? Beyond laying out my clothes, (laughs) right, the night before, am I preparing my heart and maybe, maybe even the deeper question is, like, do I really expect to meet God when I come on a Sunday morning and worship with his people where he has promised he can be found? Do I really expect to meet God? If I told you this, hey, you have an appointment with God Tuesday at 1 p.m. It's going to be in your home, and God's going to be there, and you're going to see him, and you can ask him any question you want. 
Like, how do you prepare for that? Like, Monday night, like, I'm confessing my sin. Tuesday morning, I'm waking up early to, like, be in the Word because I don't want to show up in God's presence and be like, well, I haven't really thought about you for a couple of days, but I guess I'm here. Cool. Do we prepare ourselves? And it's going to look different for different seasons that we're in. So when I was in college, my college pastor used to tell us, Saturday night, bed in 11 p.m. to the glory of God. Um, the idea is like, look, if you're staying up till 2 or 3 in the morning, which is what college students do, like, you're not going to be prepared to meet with God on Sunday morning because you're going to be asleep half the time. Of course, if it's Mike, it's bed by 9 to the glory of God. And there's no shame in that. Um, if you have little kids, like, you know once your kids are up, there's no preparation time. You're just trying to hold the four together, and if you get all your kids at church, that's a victory. So what does that mean? It means you wake up early because you know you've got to prepare your own heart. Are we preparing ourselves because we really think when we come Sunday morning, we're meeting the God who is a consuming fire? Because there is a wrong way to worship. This brings us to our second point now, which is the right way to worship. So the wrong way to worship, sincere, sincere but disobedient, what's the right way to worship? Now, it's interesting, the chronicler gives us kind of an interlude here. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't continue the story. He actually, he finishes chapter 13. The, 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 the worship processional ends on like a very, very disappointing note. And then he goes in this chapter 14, where it, it's once again describing all of like David's military victories. And, and what's interesting is, is Saul messes up, and God removes him from being king. And so you would expect, well, here David failed big time, by leading the people to be disobedient to God and someone died because of it, you would think that God would say, okay, David, you're also done. But what the chronicler is communicating again to the returning exiles, look at verse, chapter 14, verses one and two. It says, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees and masons and carpenters to build a house for him. A foreign nation is coming saying, we honor you as king so much so we're gonna build you a palace for free. And so David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. David had failed and messed up, and yet God had not removed him as king. Now, we're not told explicitly why. We see that more in First and Second Kings. But the reason is that David repented, whereas Saul did not. Saul would mess up. Samuel the prophet would come to him, Saul would feel remorse, but then he wouldn't repent. And we know that because he kept doing the same things. And we don't see David's repentance, but we know he repented because when he does it again, he does it right. His life actually changes. But chapter 14 is just communicating to the, to the readers, look, David made mistakes, no one's perfect, he was an imperfect king, but yet God did not remove him as king. And so here we get to chapter 15, where we come to what does right worship look like. And look at verses 1 to 4, and then verses 11 to 15. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it. And then David said that no one but the Levites might carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and Levites. And then jump down to verse, 20, no, sorry, verse 11 to 15. And then David summoned the priests Zadok and Abiathar and the Levites Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Lyle, and Aminadab. And he said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. 
Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord. Again, remember, it's the Levites that carry the ark. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark on their shoulders with poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Right worship involves sincerity, but also involves obedience. It's both and. It's not either or. Now, what I actually want to draw out, though, is not the fact that there was right intentions, sincerity, and obedience, but the fact that this led to joy. And the second worship principle we draw out of this is that right worship, which is authenticity and obedience, actually brings joy. Let's look at how they react in the second processional, verses 25 to 28, and verses 23, and, so, and we'll look at chapter 16, but first, chapter 15, verses 25 to 28. So this is the second processional with the ark as they're doing it right, with the Levites carrying it on poles. And David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing, And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark, and the singers, and Shania, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore linen ephod, and so all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And in chapter 16, verse 1 and 4, they brought in the ark of God and they sent it inside the tent that David had pitched for it and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and he distributed to all Israel a portion of meat and a cake of raisins. And then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord. And then verses 8 until 36 are an example of what he gave the Levites to, to, to invoke and thank and praise the Lord with before the ark. And look at verses 23 to 25. So sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. Right worship, which is authenticity and obedience, is what brings joy. Now, one of Satan's greatest lies in our context is that life with God and under his rule actually leads away from happiness and away from joy. So Satan's lies are that, you know, what's going to make you happy? What's going to bring you fullness of joy? What's going to be sex outside the boundaries that God has prescribed? That's where you're going to find joy and freedom. Maybe it's just personal freedom, the ability to do what you want and not have to submit yourself. Just that autonomy, that's where joy is. Or physical comfort, like having a nicer car, a nicer house, or better food. Like this, this is where joy is going to be. Or maybe it's just having a family. Like God, if you gave me a family, I'd be happy. I'd have joy. With the family I have, I'm seeking my joy in that. But the truth is that taking up our cross and following Jesus which oftentimes requires giving up many of these things we think bring us joy, that that's where the true joy is. 
This authentic worship plus obedience led to this outpouring of joy from the people as they encountered the presence of God. And so David himself writes in Psalm 1611, he says, he's speaking to God, he says, you make known to me the path of life. Not the paths, right? Not one of the many paths that we all take and end up this, the one path of life. You make it known to me. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not there is, a, there is a measure of joy in, in, in following Jesus, or that there is a partial joy, there's a fullness of joy. This is what we long for with our hearts, and it's found in the way of life that God made known to us in Jesus Christ. Don't let Satan deceive you. It's a lie from the pit of hell that there's happiness and joy anywhere else other than the presence of Jesus Christ. We live in a world that's seeking for joy in all the wrong places and desperately seeking and coming up to pretty drastic consequences. I read an article a few years ago that has stuck with me, and it, it looked at a couple of, of uh, public universities. They found that the top two most prescribed medications on these campuses was birth control and antidepressants. I'm not making a statement about birth control or antidepressants. That's not my point. But if you've ever done anything with college students on a secular campus, you know that's a reflection of the lie of Hollywood that free sex brings joy. The only joy that free sex brings is the joy we get after we pop some pills. And we may, you know, Hollywood may give us movie after movie after movie. This is, it'll bring you joy, it'll bring you happiness, but the, the statistics show us it's not. We have a world that's seeking for joy in all the wrong places and it's leading to drastic and, 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 and devastating consequences in the lives of people. I think as Christians, maybe one of our greatest witnesses in our context is just the sheer unvarnished delight in God. When our love and joy and delight in God just makes the alternatives look like the bland alternatives that they are. There's fullness of joy. God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. So worship principle number two, right worship, which is authenticity and obedience, that's what brings fullness of joy. But our third worship principle is that right worship is always serious, but it's not always somber. It's always serious. Right worship is never flippant. It's never like, whatever, God, here I am, let's have fun. You know, let's get a stand-up comedian in here, lighten the mood. It's always serious, but it's not always somber. Because we can do two extremes, right? There's some theological Christian traditions that kind of move towards the flippant side, and then there's other ones, usually the ones that kind of take God's holiness seriously and we move towards the somber side and we think, well, God's holy and so all of our services have to be this like somber dirge. And we sing hymns slowly and we say our like, you know, joyful shouts of worship and psalms, you read them somberly. But it just boggles the imagination to imagine David singing chapter 16, verses 23 to 25 in a monotone. It just boggles the imagination to imagine him saying, Sing to the Lord, all the earth. I mean, he is like abounding with joy. He's like, sing, sing is such a personal thing. 
It's an emotional thing. You can't sing well without some feeling in it. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sometimes the right response to God's holiness, sometimes the right response is we place our hands on our mouth and we're just silent because we are sinful and he's not. And then other times we laugh because the joy and the delight of how good he is. And in my experience, in prayer meetings where God's spirit is present in a powerful way, they're often together. And one second you're weeping because of my brokenness and my, my sin and I'm not who God wants me to be. And then I'm laughing the next minute because he loves me still. <laughs> that might not be how you act. I, God made me an emotional person. Maybe for you it's like, my, my lip dipped, that's my sorrow, my lip goes up, that's my joy, but still you're feeling it, right? Is that... Sometimes right worship is always serious, it's never flippant, but it's not always somber. And I think that's what Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians 6.10 where he describes himself and the other apostles as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This is what right worship looks like, authenticity and obedience, at least to joy. All right, there was a right and a wrong way to worship in the Old Testament, but here we are, 2,400 years later, is there a right and a wrong way for us to worship? And this is a complex question, because there isn't an Ark of the Covenant anymore, and there isn't a temple. And so all the specific prescriptions, it's like, it doesn't matter who's going to carry the Ark, it doesn't exist. We can't obey that. And so what does it look like for us? I mean, but God remains holy. He still remains a God we never approach flippantly. We take seriously, even if it's in somberness or in joy. We still approach him as holy. So, so how do we make sense of this? And if you're like me and you grew up in kind of a non-denominational, Bible, independent Baptist type, like this wasn't even a question we were talking about. The, the concept that there could be a wrong form of worship that's not actually just like sin, right? Like we all agree, again, children's sacrifices is a wrong form of worship. But the thought that like, how we structure our service could be right or wrong. It wasn't even on my radar. But historically, Christians have wrestled with that question. This is still who God is, who still cares about how we approach him. And when you look within Protestant Christianity, historically there have been two main ways that Christians have made sense of this. One kind of comes from the Reformed tradition, from, from Calvin and Geneva, and they came up with what's called the regulative principle. And so the way they make sense of a God who, who cares about how we approach him as New Testament believers is they say, well, the elements of worship, like what we do in a service, so sermon, singing, all this stuff, it needs to find some kind of express um, commandment or model in the scriptures. If it's not expressly modeled or commanded in the Bible, we're not doing it. It would be an example of approaching God with worship that's disobedient. First time I heard about that, I thought that was a little bit nuts. And that may have more just been my own background, because I just was like, didn't even think about God might care about those kind of elements. But the regulative principle is a very sophisticated way of understanding it. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of the, the, the great confessions that kind of describes this, I mean, it, it differentiates between elements and circumstances. Circumstances are all the things you have to do to carry out the elements, right? So that's language. That would include like projectors, right? So just because there's no projectors in the Bible doesn't mean according to the regulative principle you can't have it. But anyways, that's, that's one of the ways that Protestant Christians have wrestled through these issues. 
The other, the second major way that Protestant Christians have wrestled through this would be the more kind of Lutheran Anglican, uh, Anglican response. And this is a, 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 a gross oversimplification. Holy moly. But it, it is what it is. Basically, they're going to go the other way and say, look, if it's not expressly prohibited, it's good. Um, and so this is why you get things like incense, you know, like the uh, Anglican priests wearing vestments, things that historically Baptists are really bothered about. It's like, well, that's not in the Bible. They're like, yeah, but it's also not, it's not, it's not prohibited in the Bible. So it's okay. Now, within Lutheran and, and Anglican churches, doesn't I mean it's like a free-for-all, anything you want to do goes. There's deep theological reflection under um, their order of services, but that's, that, that's more the track they're taking. Now, where I've landed on this is something kind of in between. Uh, when, you look, I mean, when you look at the Old Testament, there's parts of it that are clearly a worship manual. Like Leviticus is a worship manual. It's telling the Israelite people, this is how you do sacrifices. This is how you worship God in the temple. When I read the New Testament, it doesn't read like that. And so I think if we treat the Bible like something it's not, we're not honoring God. And so to say it must be expressly commanded in the New Testament or the Bible for, me to, for us to be able to use it in the church, I, just, I, just don't, I think that's treating the Bible like something it's not. That being said, I think the instinct is right. And that we want, to, we want to be very careful about what we're using in our worship service, that it really does reflect what God wants our service to look like and wants what they're to, you know, wants uh, to have... Uh, wants to be what is in our worship service. That was awful. Anyways, you get my point. We still want to care about these. And so where I kind of come down is, I think it's best, I think it's best to try to find clear biblical warrants for the parts of our service, but for parts that you can't find a clear biblical warrant, like for instance, having a missionary give an update. That doesn't, there's no warrant for that in scripture, but I think it clearly is in line with what God has, has revealed about himself and what he cares about, and so I think it makes total sense have missionary updates in our service. Okay, so I thought it'd be helpful to go through some of the parts of our service that we've added recently and explain why we added them, where's the biblical warrant, and what's the purpose of them. We made some changes a year ago, and we described them at that point, but not everyone could be present for that, and we forget, and it's like, why do we have this confession of sin now? It seems kind of somber, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to go through a couple of those really quick. And again, this is, this is applying... The fact that there is a right and wrong way to worship God even in 21st century America. So first, we begin our services with a call to worship. I didn't start that. I think Spencer did. I don't know if Ben did a call to worship. Do you know Chandler? Okay. It was probably Spencer. We do a call to worship in the beginning of the service. Now, there's tons of scriptural warrant for that. Many of the psalms are calls to worship. The psalm that... that uh, that Austin used this morning, Psalm 96, is filled with calls to worship. And again, the Psalms were the, the, the like worship book of the, early, of, of the you know, ancient Israel people. But Psalm 96.9, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. There's tons of scriptural warrant for using calls to worship in the worship service. But the theological inference kind of behind that is we're reminding ourselves every Sunday when we come to church that I did not choose God, he chose me. I did not go out looking for God, and I found him. No, God came and sought me out, and he chose me. 
And I don't approach God because I, because I come out of him on my own you know, power and desire, but I come because God continues to call me to himself. And so every Sunday morning, we're reminded as a people we exist because God has called us to himself. Second, confession of sin. This was something we added a year ago. Why do we do a confession of sin every Sunday? Well, again, there's biblical warrant. James 5.16, James commands the New Testament church, confess your sins to each other. We read that individualistically because we live in an individualistic society, but he's talking to the church body. And so we do that every Sunday where we have a quiet time of individual confession and then we confess our sins together. But again, with a more theological reasoning behind it, because we really do believe God is holy. And while we live in this life as sinner saints, as those who've been redeemed, but yet live in sinful flesh, we recognize confession and repentance will remain a central aspect of discipleship. And so every Sunday we recognize this. Until Jesus comes back and banishes sin, this is going to be part of what it means to follow Jesus. We also added a confession of faith. This is where we say the Apostles' Creed, or we say things from various catechisms or other confessions. And again, the idea of confessing the faith is all over the scriptures. I'm going to name one really popular one, but Romans 10.9. You probably memorize this if you memorize the Romans road growing up in like a wan or whatever. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, this is written to the church body, not individuals. We confess. We have a common confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, that's the biblical warrant, and there's, and there's so many I could find for that one. They're all over the place. But the theological warrant is that we are, are a community that's not primarily a social club. We don't gather around shared, you know, extracurriculars or whatever. We're, we're a diverse body who gathers around a common confession. That is what unites us. Our common confession that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who then died for the sins of humanity, who rose again from the grave, and any who placed their faith in him can have forgiveness in life now and forever. We unite around that confession. And so every Sunday we come together and we confess either the Apostles' Creed, which is kind of the Christianity 101, or some element of that, because that is what we are. We're a confessing community. And everything else is just is secondary. And then lastly, the last one I just want to mention is a sermon. That's obviously not new. I've had sermons in this church since the beginning. But every couple years, there's kind of a new criticism of aren't sermons passe? Like passive learning? Shouldn't we be more like dialogical, more engaged? You know, the modern contemporary person, they don't want to sit there for a 30-minute sermon. It's just not realistic or... 40 or 50 or 60 minutes in, you know, in, this, in this community. Like, it's just not realistic. We need to have new methods. We need to do more image, more whatever, conversations. But in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells Timothy, this is Paul, he's, he's about to die. He's giving his final words of commendation to his protege. He tells him, Timothy, the scriptures are breathed out by God. The reason we center our, our service around the word of God is it's not just an inspiring text, but it's really God, God speaking. That's the idea of breathing. When, when we speak, we, our breath comes out of our mouth. And so even though it was written by individual humans, not erasing their personality, not erasing their humanity, but yet 
through their human particularity, it's God's voice speaking. And so that's why right after 2 Timothy 3.16, then Paul goes, and I charge you in the sight of God and man, Timothy, preach the word. That's a command that echoes through the generations. It doesn't matter. The context we're in, that's the charge that remains, to preach the word. And there's theological reasons behind that. Throughout the Bible, it's clear that God advances his kingdom. He convicts hearts through the preaching of his word, through his word. But at the end of the day, that's, that's the command we're given. And that's why we have a sermon. That's why half, if not more, of our service is dedicated to the preaching of the word. It's not because I like to hear myself talk. It's because it's commanded to us. Vine Street, how we worship really matters. It really, really matters. Not just sincerity, but sincerity and obedience. What God has commanded to us. Respect and, and reverence and joy in face of his holiness. Worship that is sincere and obedient. You know, there's only one person that did that perfectly. It was Jesus. Jesus wept tears like blood in the garden. That doesn't get more authentic than that. And yet he also was filled with zeal for his father's house. He cared so much about right worship, he, he made a whip. It's the only violent thing we know of that Jesus ever did. And it was because he cared about right worship. Jesus is the only one who combined those perfectly. And then in Jesus' death, we see the fullness of God's holiness. That it wasn't just a holiness that wants to vaporize people, but it's a loving holiness that draws near to the broken and the lost and the sinful and those who are hopeless. And through the death of Jesus makes a way for us to be found and for us to have life and for us to be in relationship with a God who is holy. It's a holiness that takes hearts of stone and it makes them into flesh. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we, we always want to approach you knowing that you are the divine son of God, the king of the universe, that you are holy. That you are never to be taken lightly, but yet also in your presence is the fullness of joy. So please, may you reveal yourself to us. May you overlook our, our, our failings, our weaknesses, our sins, and forgive them be, because of your blood. May our worship services, may, may, may they be filled with conviction and the awareness that you're present among us and you're so good and you're holy. We pray this in, in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.